0: from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace coming from The Washington Post.
1: Hi, Jeff. Ms. Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there, how are you? It's Lisa Bonas calling for The Post.
0: This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, November 26th. Today, the Justice Department's efforts to re-incarcerate newly freed inmates. What's next for the impeachment inquiry? and supermarket socialism.
2: Uh, Thank you you very much.
0: So last month in Columbia, South Carolina, that is investigative reporter Nina Satija. President
2: Trump
3: attended a criminal justice reform summit.
2: It's my great privilege to speak with you today and My true honor to receive the Bipartisan Justice Award.
3: At that summit, he received an award for being instrumental in
2: passing the First Step Act. The most significant criminal justice reform
0: in many generations. The First Step Act is a landmark piece of legislation that was signed in December 2018, It was a huge accomplishment for President Trump. It passed with significant support from Democrats and Republicans. And the law includes provisions for reducing some federal prison sentences. It allows some incarcerated people to qualify for early release. And it's affected the lives of several thousand federal inmates. So the First Step Act does a lot of different things. But what the
3: president really zeroed in on in his speech in South Carolina was talking about the sentencing reform
2: provisions. The more people I spoke with, the more clear it became that the system could be deeply unfair, contributing to a tragic cycle of poverty and crime and incarceration. He talked specifically about the fact that thousands
3: of people, overwhelmingly African-American, have been in federal prison for decades because of unfair prison sentences for crack cocaine-related offenses.
2: Here with us today is one of the Americans who changed her life and was recently released under the First Step Act. And he pointed to people like Tanisha Bannister. Please, Tanisha, come up and tell us your story. Thank you very much, please.
4: My name is Tanisha Bannister. I was released after doing 16 and a half years under the First Step Act. In
3: 2003, Tanisha Bannister was sentenced to life in prison for trafficking crack cocaine. Your charge that you were convicted of by the jury was what exactly?
4: Conspiracy to possess an attempt to distribute five kilos or more cocaine or crack.
3: She was actually sentenced for trafficking more than five kilograms of powder cocaine as well as more than 50 grams of crack cocaine. And it's the crack cocaine that triggered a mandatory minimum sentence of 20 years in prison. But actually, because she decided to go to trial, she was sentenced to life in prison. Wow. So you would have been—how old were you at that point? I was 29. And was it a shock to you and your family at the time to get that kind of a sentence?
4: Oh, my God, I was devastated. I was a single mother. I didn't have my biological mother around. Sometimes we become a product of our environment. So drugs was a big issue, where and how I was raised. And it was like I was the backbone of the family. And when I was sentenced to life and sent away, it was like things fell apart all over again. A lot of people depended on me to help them navigate through life, whether it was financially, mentally emotionally, or just there to stir them in the right direction. And when I left, they didn't have that. And it was just like a repeated cycle.
3: And how many how many kids do you have?
4: I have two adult children now. They were eight and ten when I went away.
3: What, what happened with your kids, and, and how did you stay in touch with them?
4: It was hard in the beginning because at a young age, my son asked me from the age of eight, Until 14 years old for six years straight. Mom, do you have a court date? When are you coming home? And at that time, I know I started to lose him because he stopped asking. And he started getting involved in things that could possibly end him up to where I was. I'm sorry.
0: So the kind of sentencing that Tanisha Bannister received was a huge part of the criminal justice system for a long time, right? That that people who had minor to moderate drug offenses would end up having incredibly long sentences. That's right. Actually, in 1986,
3: Congress passed the Anti-Drug Abuse Act.
2: Today, it gives me great pleasure to sign legislation that reflects the total commitment of the American people and their government to fight the evil of drugs.
3: This was sort of at what some people consider to be the height of the drug wars. There was a lot
2: of Overdoses going on, violent
3: crime was high.
2: We must be intolerant of drug use and drug sellers.
3: And this helped spur this feeling in Congress and among the public that there needed to be harsher penalties for drug-related offenses.
2: We must be intolerant of drugs, not because we want to punish drug users, but because we care about them and want to help them.
3: What Congress decided is that they would force judges, in essence, to sentence offenders to certain minimum penalties depending on how many drugs they had. And depending on the type of drug, you would get a different mandatory minimum sentence. So for instance, if you had at least five grams of crack cocaine, you would get a mandatory minimum prison sentence of five years. But that five years, you would also get for as much as 500 grams of powder cocaine. Only a few years after Congress imposed these mandatory punishments did it become widely accepted that they had racist underpinnings. Black drug users tended to use crack cocaine and white drug users tended to use powder cocaine. What that ended up doing was disproportionately hurting African Americans. I guess when did you first learn that there were these disparities between how much prison time you might face for a crack offense versus a powder cocaine offense.
4: Oh my God, at that time, because it's like a five times more difference.
0: So one of the objectives of the First Step Act was basically to correct for that, to go back and find these people who had been sentenced in a way that many people feel is unfair to find them and to help them get out of prison. And the way
3: that the First Step Act did this was it changed the thresholds that trigger these mandatory minimum sentences now that ratio is no longer 1 to 100. Now you have to prove that someone had at least 28 grams of crack in order to get them a five-year mandatory minimum sentence. And actually, that was a law that changed in 2010. It was
2: called the Fair Sentencing Act. Those in favor, signify by saying aye. aye. Those opposed, no. In the opinion of the chair, two-thirds being in the affirmative, the rules are suspended the bill is passed. And without objection, the motion to reconsider is laid upon the table
4: a lot of things had changed with the Fair Sentencing Act in 2010. However, it wasn't retroactive. And my mind, I'm saying if it's wrong now, it was wrong back then. So how can you enact a law to help ones that's coming into prison, but the ones that served several years and still stuck in prison can't benefit from it?
3: So, the First Step Act allowed Tanisha Bannister to apply for retroactive sentencing reform relief. And so she had the chance to petition before a judge for a sentence reduction or for release. And the judge decided
0: to release her. So, now that Tanisha Bannister is out of prison, what did she tell you about what her life is like now? I think, in her view,
4: it's been truly a blessing because I'm able to physically be in my adult children's life. I missed out on so much. And so many things that happened. And I still, right to this day, have to adopt the mindset of, I'm dealing with adult children and not the 8-year-old and the 10-year-old that I left behind over 16 years ago.
3: She could have spent another at least 10, if not more, years in prison. She could have potentially spent her whole life there.
4: First Step Act not only freed thousands of people, but it helped rehabilitate us to have us ready to integrate back into society and live a comfortable life. And I just want to say thank you again. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And Tanisha, I want you to give me some
2: recommendations uh, of people that you lived with for many years that you know are good people that are in there for a long period of time. I want you to give me a list of names, okay? Because I know
0: I think it's really interesting that we've gotten to this point where basically the government is saying that the way that we were doing sentencing before is wrong. Well, it depends on what branch of government you're talking about. So
3: it seems from his public statements that that's how the president feels, but the Department of Justice seems to potentially have a different view. In fact, the federal prosecutors involved in Tanisha Bannister's case told the judge that they don't believe she deserved to be released. They actually fought for her to stay in prison rather than to get released. What was it that they were trying to argue, as you understand it?
4: That I didn't qualify because of the drug weight with the Ferris Sentencing Act. It took the ratio down of the disparity between crack cocaine and cocaine from 100 to 1 to 18 to 1. And they were still trying to make the argue that it didn't apply to me because the amount of drugs didn't warrant me relief.
3: They argue that she had been involved in a crime with a way larger amount of crack than what she was actually convicted of. And that the amount of crack that she had was large enough that she's still subject to a life sentence in prison, even with the change in
0: the law. I'm confused at how they can just be like, oh, well, she actually had more crack than we say that she had if that if she was convicted for having a certain amount of crack. It's a very good question.
3: And what prosecutors are arguing is well, yes, okay, she was convicted of a crime that was literally said, you know, you have this certain sentence if you had 50 or more grams of crack. But when the judge actually sentenced her, we put all these other alleged facts on the table, and the judge decided to give her this high sentence because there was evidence that she might have actually had 364 grams. And what the defense attorneys have said, what people in Congress have said, and what some people said who actually helped draft the law— is that this is a totally crazy interpretation. They're saying, wait a minute, you can't suddenly go back and say, actually, she had way more crack. You need to stick with what you've convicted her of prosecutors and the Department of Justice have a different
0: view. This seems like a pretty bizarre situation to me, right? That that you have the White House and lawmakers advocating for a thing and then the Department of Justice basically trying to actively oppose it at the same time. So is this a thing that has just happened to Tanisha Bannister or has it happened to other people too? It's happened to many other
3: people. According to defense attorneys that we spoke with and court records that we've reviewed, the Department of Justice has made this argument in at least hundreds of cases. Now at the end of the day it's up to the judge. The judge can ignore the prosecutor or not ignore the prosecutor but dismiss the prosecutor's argument and release the person anyway. That's what the judge did in Tanisha Bannister's case. They said, "I don't buy this argument prosecutor. I'm going to release her anyway. I have the authority to do that." But a few judges, at least 5 federal judges in 5 different states, have said, "You might be right prosecutor. I don't know if I have the authority to release this person." And so they've decided not to. In a few other cases, a judge has released someone and the prosecutors have actually appealed the case and said, we think this person should go back to prison. In the most ironic example of that...
2: We're also proud to have with us on stage five more Americans who have been released under the First Step Act and transformed their lives. And that includes Gregory Allen. Where's Gregory? Gregory. Hi, Gregory. A
3: man named Gregory Allen from Florida.
2: My Mine is real short. Two months ago, I was in in a prison cell, and I'm in the White House. Let's continue to make America great again.
3: He actually appeared with President Trump at a White House event in April. At that exact moment, prosecutors had already appealed his release and argued that he should go back to prison. Although a few weeks later, they dropped that appeal without any explanation.
0: But why is this happening? Like if. If it seems like everyone else has sort of accepted that, that many of these sentences were unfair, then why is the Department of Justice, after the fact, going after all these cases and arguing for these people to not be released? The Department of Justice's view is
3: that they told us, in quotes, this is a fairness issue. They believe that if people like Tanisha Bannister actually had 400 grams of crack cocaine and not just 50 that she would have been subject to these harsh sentences, even with the changes in law. And so they're saying, you know, if we had known this before, we would have charged her with having that much crack. We wouldn't have just stayed at 50. But the thing about that is, well, they didn't have to prove that she had that much crack in the past because the laws were different. And so what some judges have said is, well, wait a minute, now you're asking to— charge this person with a crime that didn't exist in the 90s, you know, and then imagine that they should be sentenced at that level.
0: And that doesn't make any sense. And what does the White House have to say about the fact that even though they passed this huge piece of legislation that is considered one of the crowning achievements of Trump's first term in office, that now the Department of Justice is stopping that legislation from being as effective as it was intended?
3: We asked the white house for comment and they declined there are hundreds of releases that are in paralysis because some judges have said we agree with the prosecutors and we're not going to release you and then other judges have said we don't want to make any decisions until we hear from the appellate courts and i've read rulings where judges actually are like we beseech you appellate court to step in and give us guidance here so there's a lot of confusion and lives at stake and that i've talked to people who could spend the rest of their life in prison
0: who otherwise might not have And what do people like Tanisha Bannister say about the fact that, at least within the the Department of Justice, that there are still people who don't believe that she deserves to be out of prison?
3: I think that they're concerned and distressed by the argument that the Department of Justice is making.
4: I just pray that they get their mindset in touch with the emotional state of the families that's been broken, the lives that's been destroyed. And know that people are deserving of a second chance. No one understands the magnitude of incarceration if you haven't lived it, breathed it, and had to go through the failures of the system for so long.
0: Nina Satija is an investigative reporter for The Post.
4: Was there a quid pro quo? The only agency represented
2: in the meeting that... uh,
0: Based on questions and statements I've heard, some of you on this committee appear to believe...
2: With regard to the requested White House call and the White House meeting, the answer is yes.
0: After weeks of public and private hearings, House investigators are preparing a report on everything they've learned so far in the impeachment inquiry. But at the same time, recent court rulings and separate investigations could complicate things even further. A federal judge ruled
1: that the White House's former top lawyer, Don McGahn, has to talk to Congress, even though the White House has banned him from doing so.
0: Amber Phillips is a political analyst for the fix.
1: This whole debate goes back to the Mueller report, and Special Counsel Robert Mueller indicated McGahn was present in some key conversations that could outline potential obstruction of justice related to the president and trying to undermine the Mueller report. So Democrats really wanted to talk to McGahn, who's no longer in the White House. They subpoenaed him, and McGahn decided to obey a White House ruling to not comply with any subpoenas whatsoever. The White House tried to argue that this is because he gets absolute immunity from sharing any Client privileges with the president, even though he's not in the White House anymore. Democrats sued McGahn and took him to court over that, and they won. A federal district judge said this is an affront to the mechanism for curbing abuses of power that the framers carefully crafted for our protection. So she did not mince words that she thought McGahn needed to comply with the subpoena. The White House just can't ban anyone
0: from talking to Congress. And so that ruling came out on Monday, and then how has the Justice Department responded to that? The Justice Department
1: is appealing it, raising the question of whether this climbs all the way up to the Supreme Court.
0: So then why is all of this important?
1: With regards to impeachment, it's not a court case directly related to the impeachment inquiry. Democrats want to talk to McGahn over his involvement in the Mueller report And they've kept the impeachment inquiry pretty narrow related to the president's pressure campaign on Ukraine. But impeachment has gotten wrapped up in this case in that this ruling could help Democrats compel more people to testify on Ukraine. People like President Trump's former national security advisor, John Bolton, or the acting White House chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney. The White House ban on talking to Congress applies to them, too, with the impeachment inquiry. And Democrats now have a federal judge ruling that you can't just blanketly ban these people from talking.
0: So that could affect who we hear from in the future. But for now, this week, what are House investigators doing as part of the impeachment inquiry?
1: Yeah, before this ruling, they thought that public impeachment hearings were done, and they might still be done. House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff sent a letter to lawmakers yesterday saying, we are now focused on writing a report of all the alleged wrongdoing we heard over the past month or two of private and public hearings. The plan is to come back from Thanksgiving, hand that to the House Judiciary Committee, and let that committee write up articles of impeachment against the president based on this report. So... Unless somebody like John Bolton comes forward quickly, Schiff has indicated that the committee isn't going to wait around for court cases to decide whether they can talk to Congress.
2: What we're not prepared to do is wait months and months while the administration plays a game of rope-a-dope in an effort to try to stall. Uh, we're not willing to go down that road. And what's more, the evidence is already overwhelming. The, the remarkable thing about this, and we've done this with almost, well, literally no documentary production from the administration is the facts are really not contested.
0: So this report that's going to be given to the Judiciary Committee after Thanksgiving, do we know whether it will actually lay out a proposal for what articles of impeachment could look like? And do we have a sense of of what kinds of charges House Democrats are considering for the articles of impeachment?
1: The report won't specifically say to the Judiciary Committee. You should impeach the president for X, Y, and Z because that's the Judiciary Committee's role historically in this process is to come up with their own articles of impeachment. But it'll lay out a roadmap in all but name for the Judiciary Committee to pick out things that they could distill into articles of impeachment. And hearing Adam Schiff and Democrats talk over the past month or two, I think it's highly likely that they focus on some very broad articles of impeachment, like abuse of power.
3: The president has used his office for his own personal gain, and in doing so, undermined the national security of the United States by withholding military assistance to the Ukraine to the benefit of the
1: Russians. Just say the president tried to leverage his power to politicize diplomacy with the foreign government in order to help him benefit politically from that. That's an abuse of power. They also are strongly indicating that they might put down the same article of impeachment against Richard Nixon that Congress wrote up, obstruction of justice. And that would be, Schiff has said, because the president has not allowed people like John Bolton or Mick Mulvaney or the State Department to comply with subpoenas to talk to Congress or give documents to Congress.
0: So these are all things that that House Democrats are considering right now. But there's also this investigation that's going on with Rudy Giuliani, the president's personal attorney. What is happening with that?
1: Yeah, so let's back up to October. If you recall, two of Giuliani's business associates got arrested and charged with campaign finance violations at an airport outside of Washington, D.C. We now are learning this week that federal prosecutors in that case are looking at Giuliani's consulting firm— as part of that probe, the Washington Post and others have reported Monday into Tuesday that these prosecutors are considering a whole host of crimes, like failing to register as a foreign lobbyist, de- deactivating, even destroying documents, more campaign finance violations. It's the clearest indication yet that prosecutors are looking at Giuliani's business ties and the legality of that. So this court case isn't directly related to the impeachment inquiry, but it involves all the figures in the impeachment inquiry. Giuliani, who every national security official and diplomat who testified to Congress over the past couple of weeks said was a key player in pushing Trump's agenda in Ukraine. And then the two people specifically under investigation are these two Soviet-born American businessmen. People have testified that they were working side by side with Giuliani to push these unsubstantiated allegations about the former ambassador Marie Yovanovitch that eventually got raised to Trump and got her ousted. And so you have these people who seem to be at the genesis of some of these allegations about Ukraine that eventually got Trump's attention and allegedly motivated him to politicize Ukraine policy being investigated by federal prosecutors. We don't know what what they find. Um, but could it put pressure on some of these people to try to make a deal with prosecutors at the same time that Congress might want to talk to them? Already one of these guys, Lev Parnas, uh, is out there with this lawyer saying, I know more information. Uh, he gave over thousands of pages of documents to Congress, and he's saying he really wants to talk right now. Um, it, just, it, it all just seems interconnected in a way that we might not be able to see in real time. But this court case feels very germane to the impeachment inquiry.
0: So at the end of the day, the impeachment process is a political process. And what the public thinks about it does actually matter. So from when the impeachment inquiry was first launched to now, has there been a change in public opinion? And has there been a change in response to the public hearings and having these people, these central figures in the investigation actually come on TV to tell their story to the American public?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think arguably the most important question the impeachment inquiry, because public opinion affects how lawmakers are going to vote on whether to impeach Trump. When we started these hearings, it was split about 47-47 down the line of whether people thought Trump deserved to be impeached. We're still a little early on the public opinion side, but some early polls happening right as these impeachment hearings were wrapping up show America is still split. And surprise, by party, predictably. In particular, I looked at a CNN poll that came out this past weekend, and they found just 10% of Republicans thought Trump deserved to be impeached and removed from office, while 86% of them, after most of these hearings were done, said they support the job Trump is doing. That is very instructive to Republican lawmakers when this vote comes before the House, likely in December. I see no indication anyone is going to defect and vote to impeach the president, which is a remarkable display of political unity
0: on their part. Amber Phillips is a political analyst for The Fix. And now, one more thing about what one town is doing to address a food desert.
5: Often when we have discussions about socialism, we see a meme that's pictures of empty grocery store shelves, and that's presented as this is what happens with socialism. And a lot of these come from Cold War propaganda and have actually been pretty debunked. Um, A lot of times they're actually photos that were taken at food pantries or in supermarkets where there just was a natural disaster. And the funny thing is, in Baldwin, Florida, socialism, although they don't call it that, has actually had a really positive effect on residents' food access.
0: Antonia Farzan covers national news for The Post. Last month, she visited Baldwin, Florida. It's a small rural town just east of Jacksonville. It's got about 1,600 people. They tend to be older, more politically conservative, and lower income than the state average.
5: And their only grocery store shut down last year. For some people, that meant that you were driving 10 to 20 miles, often through road construction, freeway traffic, just to buy groceries. But for a lot of people, especially the lower income people and the senior citizens, they didn't have an option. So they'd be going down to the truck stop to go to McDonald's, they'd be going to Dollar General, getting canned food, and they didn't have a lot of healthy, fresh food in their diets. So the mayor, Sean Lynch, had an unconventional idea, which is that the town should open its own grocery store. So in other communities that have the same problem with rural food access, we've seen them forming co-ops that are run by residents. Um, We've seen nonprofits opening up their own grocery stores. But what's different in Baldwin is the grocery stores actually owned and run by the town. So all the employees are on the municipal payroll. They're all city employees. People can make their request directly to the mayor about what they want to see in the store. And even people who work on the maintenance staff for the town will come in, help unload boxes, and get food on the shelves. The goal is not to make a profit. It's just to be able to pay off the initial loan that was used to get the store off the ground. And then any money that they take in after that is going to go back into the store, go into improvements in the community. People might believe that government should have a more limited role in people's lives. But in this case, in order for these towns to survive, they really need grocery stores. So in this case, you have a pretty conservative town um, where about 60 percent of residents voted for Donald Trump. But the mayor sees it like a utility, like having water or a sewer system. And it's been a real success. There was not a lot of hesitation about the government getting into the grocery business because everyone was frustrated with the situation. On the first weekend they opened, practically the entire population of the town came in. They sold out meat. They've been exceeding their sales goal on average most days. And they just brought on two more employees to help out for the holiday season. There's definitely some discussion. A lot of people in the food access world are interested to see if this is something that can be replicated elsewhere, if it makes more sense to stick with community-run co-ops or nonprofits, which is what we've already seen happening in other communities. And one potential challenge is that when you have something that's run by the government, you can have a new council or a new group of supervisors get voted in and say, we don't want to do this anymore. But then there's also the possibility that perhaps something that's publicly owned could be more responsive to residents than something that's only owned by a select group of people in the community could be, like a co-op. You also have the benefit of having workers be city employees, especially in some rural areas where it can be hard to find people who want to come out there and work. It can be a real benefit to be able to say, you'll get a city pension, you'll get all of these benefits that city workers do. So what most food access advocates agree is it's just really good to have this as another option for communities where there are food deserts, in addition to nonprofits, in addition to co-ops. this is just another tool in the toolbox, so to speak.
0: Antonia Farzan writes about national news for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You know, I'm always surprised at the number of people I meet who have never listened to a podcast before, which is a bummer because they're missing out on something that's totally great. If you are going to be with family or friends at Thanksgiving this year, tell them to try out a podcast and maybe even recommend Post Reports as a show to start off with. You can tell them that one of our listeners, Jomo Pembo, recently gave us a five-star review and called us no drama. And everyone needs something a little no drama around Thanksgiving. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.